do seagulls do? I, that but I is hate a, seagulls. They're sky rats. They're sky rats, <laughs> 100%. Hey everyone, my name is Nick. And my name's Kat. Thanks for listening to our podcast, Made for You and Me, an educational and entertaining podcast on the history, geology, wildlife, and other fun facts within America's best idea, the national parks. Kat, it's Friday. Oh my girl. TGIF, baby. Y'all. Have we ever recorded on a Friday? Um, no, we're cooler than that usually. <laughs> <laughs> Typically. Well, we are playing a little... Hooky from work right now. We are recording no, we're in the middle not. of the it's day. Lunchtime. Oh, I guess we get an hour <laughs> off for lunch. This, this is true. I but know America is like work all the time, but we do get an hour. I off. haven't like stuck to a lunch hour in months, like since work from home began. I just work when I feel like working and take a break when I feel like taking a break. And I did not even think. I did not even realize that you were like, yeah, around lunchtime. I just thought that like. Noon was a good day to record a podcast. I didn't even think about an actual break. Well, and I hear what you're saying, and I feel the same way. Sometimes, like, if you're not hungry and things are just flowing, just keep going. But I I think about it every day. I'm like, you have an hour. Like, take okay. your hour either at the end of the day, sleep in for an hour, and get all your snuggles in, whatever that may be. But, yeah. That's so healthy. But then I work all weekend and mm. into the night. And- I typically work like through the normal time that a lunch break is and then around like 3 4 i'll go to the gym mm-hmm. and hit the gym before everyone else starts scrolling in at five Smart. and then if there was any leftover work i'll do it after work hours but it doesn't make a difference because i have a really great supervisor who has the attitude of as long as you get your work done like everyone's supervisor should be and i don't have to be logged in at my computer freedom from eight to five yeah let it ring let it ring I agree. So that's so cool. So happy lunch break to us and happy evening, morning, nighttime, whatever part of the day it is that you're listening to this. Oh, man. I hope you're listening on a leisurely walk in the middle of the afternoon and there's like a lot of sun and just enough wind and you've got a really cute pup. And um, if you're if that's not your situation, you should text me because yeah, I don't have that either. <laughs> we can commiserate together. Wishful thinking for herself and for you is what Kat's doing. Oh, that sounds so nice though. Mm-hmm. Actually, yeah. How about everyone put on your story on your Instagram story what you're doing while you're listening to the Made for You Me podcast, and we will restore it. That sounds great. <laughs> Hopefully, we'll get lots of walks and lots of pups. Maybe some cooking, cooking, stationary bicycles. Let's see what you all do while you listen to us. What are you doing? <laughs> I'm not what supposed to doing? whisper anymore. Let's <laughs> <laughs> we'll see if that actually comes out. Cool. Uh, well, Kat, what else? Any new hot gossip? What's the 411? Well, this week we inaugurated a new president. This is true. And true chains. Ironically, he has already started working on the national memorials. Yeah. So, right and to work. That is good news for anyone who's probably listening to this podcast. Not such good news for people who think that the federal government shouldn't have land. Safe bet. <laughs> I would say, yeah, you're probably spot on with that assumption. 
Yeah. But um, yeah, so it's that's very exciting. And so Nick and I talked about this for a moment, but we got a shout out, personal shout out mm-hmm. for our podcast from JLo. We sure did. So Jennifer I, Lopez has been listening and she was like, I'm going to sneak this into my song at the inauguration. Yeah. If y'all didn't know, she is like one of the people that listens multiple times every week. Yeah. She's <laughs> a hardcore fan. So... Thanks for your support, J-Lo. Let us know what we can do to support you. We might have just a few less Instagram followers than you, but we'll do what we can to um, promote the J-Lo yeah, name. Yeah, we'll reshare you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. We'll do that for you, I suppose. Um, yeah, so that was really cool for uh, her to incorporate the song that was the inspiration for our podcast name in her little jam sesh at the Ignog... Ignog- Hello? inauguration (laughs) sorry (laughs) i was like adding four g's (laughs) to that word uh but yeah so that was cool if you didn't see that song or even listen to um or haven't tuned back in to hear the national anthem sung by lady gaga you should they're both really great and amanda gorman oh that was so stole the show she really did yeah everything about it everything about it that was that was really good yeah poets man they're making a comeback. So I heard yesterday, I have not fact-checked this, that she actually was at Harvard as a student and didn't like the way she talked. So much like me, and now that I listen to myself and I like oh. drop the end of words and like don't enunciate some letters. <laughs> and so that's when she got into poetry. Good for was her. in college to learn how to speak more clearly. That's so, so great. I I might I might take a page. Of course, be inspired. Very yep. cool. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, Kat, I'm super excited to talk about today's topic: Canyonlands National Park in Utah. In the Utah, Kat, do you know what a canyon is? <laughs> yes. Well, apparently, Canyonlands is just a land that is so full of canyons. <laughs> And they made a national park for it. So it's right there in the name. Makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, But Canyonlands National Park is an American national park located in southeastern Utah near the town of Moab. The park preserves a colorful landscape eroded into numerous canyons, mesas, and buttes by the Colorado River, the Green River, and their respective tributaries. And yes, Kat, I said buttes, not butts. But we're not getting into that again. It is 337,598 acres, making it the 23rd largest national park. So kind of right smack dab in the middle as far as sizes. And it was established on September 12th, 1964. In 2018, it had 739,449 visitors. Not that many. Not that many. And that's actually like a 25% increase versus just the year before mm. so it's gained a lot of popularity in the past couple of years so yeah less than a million but it only had like four hundred thousand, like before 2015 well we're gonna give all the reasons why more people should go we sure are so like i said mentioning the colorado river and the green river uh canyonlands national park were created by these rivers that carved their way into the colorado plateau cat have you ever heard of the colorado plateau 
No, tell me more. I had never heard of it. And once I Googled it, I was like, this is so cool. So the Colorado Plateau is a large desert region that's roughly centered in the four corners of Colorado, Utah, Arizona, and New Mexico. The Colorado Plateau has the greatest concentration of U.S. National Parks units in the country outside of Washington, D.C. Among its nine national parks are the Grand Canyon, Zion, Bryce Canyon, Capitol Reef, Canyonlands, Arches, Mesa Verde, and the Petrified Forest. It also contains 18 national monuments. The Colorado Plateau is 240,000 square miles. That's larger than every state except Texas. It's only, it's about 20,000 square miles less than Texas. So this desert area is massive and it's in four states. Does it actually plateau off? Like, drop yeah. Down? Cool. Yeah. Um, so it's like just this massive, cool plateau that's sitting in the middle of the country. Uh, so anyway, among a few other national parks, Canyonlands National Parks is in the Colorado Plateau. So back to Canyonlands. It's divided into four districts. And this is important because we're going to mention it throughout the episode. The first is Islands in the Sky. Then comes the Needles. Then comes the Maze. And then the other section is like kind of nameless, but it's the intersection of the two rivers. And while these areas share a primitive desert atmosphere, each retains its own character. So they are different in their own way, even though... Uh, they do have like the desert-esque theme of like the buttes and the mesas and the rocks and the red and the hikes and the vast scenes. This was um, why a lot of people said that they prefer it over the Grand Canyon was because of the diversity. I've actually heard that a lot. I have a number of friends who have gone to Canyonlands and they say it's one of their favorite parks, Mm -hmm. which is really cool. I've never been. Um, But yeah, uh, for the same reasons of just like the diversity of it, it's kind of like... Uh, a low-key Grand Canyon and for that reason some people say it's better than the Grand Canyon we will see we will see I have been to the Grand Canyon and like whoa Ron Swanson says there are only two acceptable times to cry in one's life which like I don't agree with that but this is a fun quote and the first is at a funeral and the second is at the Grand Canyon (laughs) and I can get on board with those two things I don't think I cried at the Grand Canyon but uh I'm kind of surprised that I didn't because it was overwhelming. It was like stupid. You promised me you would insane. warn me if you were going to cry today. Oh my gosh. So <laughs> I'm not gonna if you're cry. about to cry now, I'm not going to cry reminiscing about the Grand Canyon. But um, if anyone does cry at the Grand Canyon, like. You were supported by Nick Offerman. You are supported that by Nick Offerman. It's pretty much all you need in life. Yeah. Um, so anyway, Kat, let's talk about the history of Canyonlands National Park. Canyonlands acknowledges the people who are traditionally associated with these landscapes, and you can see the entire list of all the native tribes on the National Park website. But people have visited what is now Canyonlands National Park for over 10,000 years. Over time, many different groups have moved in and out of the area in concert with the availability of the natural resources and the technology for exploiting these resources. For early European explorers, the maze of canyons found here seemed impenetrable, so they looked to the indigenous people whose navigation routes proved to be economically important on a regional scale. So these areas in Canyonlands National Park were important to explore just because of how really neat they are, but also important to be able to traverse for economic purposes like trading and moving goods. Right. Um, and that's pretty neat that um, some of these 
uh, trails that the indigenous people had used for thousands of years were the exact same trails that were in the future move, used to move goods and even more people and even Paddle more trails, travelers. And now you can drive on them. Exactly. Uh, but the first Europeans to explore the heart of Canyonlands were likely trappers searching western rivers for beaver and otter in the early 19th century. And then later in the 19th century, pioneers and missionaries of the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints, otherwise known as LDS, not to be confused with LSD, <laughs> LDS, they moved into the Canyonlands area, and most early LDS settlers relied on farming, ranching, and prospecting to make their living. Prospecting. So, I hope you didn't hear that really loud car that just came by, but also, that's what that was. So let's talk about how in the world this weird wild place became a national park. In the early 1950s, this dude named Bates Wilson, who was at the time the superintendent of Arches National Monument, began exploring the area to the south and west of Moab, Utah. So this is 1950s, Kat. We are only like a couple years from space exploration. (laughs) And this huge area in Utah hadn't been explored with technology with technology or documented right how weird is that to think about so arches national monument was obviously a monument at the time and the town of moab had been established but there was still this like thousands and thousands of acres of land that people didn't really know about so bates wilson was like i'm gonna go see what this is all about and then he began exploring um and after seeing what is now known as the needles district of kenyan lands national park he began to advocate for the establishment of a new park that would include the needles but then additional explorations by wilson and others expanded the areas proposed for inclusion um, to include all the areas that are in the park today and not just the needles. And then in September 1964, after several years of debate, Congress passed the bill which established Canyonlands National Park. And then Bates Wilson became, he got a little promotion, he became the first superintendent of the new park and is often referred to as Father of the Canyonlands. I feel like there's a character in Candyland that's like the father of the events. I don't know why. Since you started with the whole Canyonland thing, I've been thinking about Candyland. (laughs) Candyland? Canyonland. Not to be confused. Maybe we can make like a little meme out of that on our social media. Um, But you know who I was thinking about whenever I was learning about Bates Wilson? I was thinking about the prospector from Toy Story 2. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Obviously, like, Bates Wilson was probably a nicer guy because it turned out in that movie, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it, the prospector turned out to be, like, not a great guy. Um, and he had some very selfish intent. But the old, like, Western exploration, pickaxe, older man mm-hmm. with a big white mustache, that's what I was thinking about. So we got the prospector from Toy Story 2 and the board game Candyland. <laughs> uh, so that's my short little spiel on the history. Um, so instead of taking a break now, Kat, do you want to just dive right in and get to some of the uh, plants and aminals? I do. I'm looking up Candyland right now, though. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Quick Google search. Well, we'll get back to that. So looking at pictures of Canyonland, and not that either of us have ever been there, but um, from hearing what people say about Canyonland, you would not think that it is full of critters. Yeah. And it's not full of critters in the way that some parks are, but it does have a lot of wildlife. 
Um, it has the same amount of like 200 and something birds as everywhere else. Oh gosh, so, all those birds. And it's always so funny doing this research and it's like always pointed out like this place has 300 bird species. And then you go to the next park and you're like, oh, and this park has 214 bird species. And it's like, that's really great. But also, first of all, how many different bird species are there? <laughs> and second of all, like if every place has so many bird species, like why is it... Like, why are we pointing it out? Like, it just seems normal. I remember when we first started this, you were like, are you going to point out how many birds there are? It was yeah. like our first two episodes, and I was like, no. <laughs> and, like, it wasn't because I, I didn't think it was important. I just, like, I was like, mm, I don't know. Like, th- we'll talk about that. But, yeah, it's not – there's lots of birds. We will talk about one. Heaps of birds. Yeah, heaps of birds. But um, – and we've, we've discussed this in past episodes that have the same type of – environment as Candyland. So I think Pinnacles was one. Mm-hmm. Um, the Petrified Forest. Petrified Forest. Yep. And we'll have many more. But this is a, a deserty area. Mm-hmm. And as with all deserty areas, we're going to have lots of animals that want to come out at night. Not only so that it's not so hot, but they're also protecting themselves against predators. But then predators will evolve to also come out at night. So you have like owls and there's even like bobcats, I think, Ooh. that come out. There's also animals that only come out in dos- dusk and dawn. So they're not like, I want to be in the dark and hidden and Batman-y. They're just like, I just want to be out for a little while and get my food and run back in. I can relate to that. Yeah. So those are called uh, diurnal. So there's plenty of those. And then we also have not lots of other critters. We have some reptiles and snakes and things of that nature that can't regulate their body temperature without the sun. They just come out during the day. So that I I think everyone pretty much knows that at this point. But I did want to go over it again. It is very similar. And we have a lot of the same animals that we have talked about in previous podcast in here so if you want to go back if you haven't listened to us we talk about kangaroo rats we talk about ooh beavers and otters and bats porcupine songbirds perfect go back and listen yeah go back and listen to all of these because mentioned them. They, they live they live in in multiple places and obviously this whole plateau is it covers four states so what Aminals have we not talked about? Also, we know that you don't really pronounce the word animal, aminal. That's just like a cute, fun thing we do. Um, but just in case any of you were idiots and like thought that we actually said aminals, <laughs> just want to point that out there. So since we have already talked about some bats and porcupines and all sorts mm-hmm. of things, is there anything that we haven't discussed so far that is in Canyonlands National Park that you did want to point out? Yes. So we're going to dive in. Dive we're in. Go ahead and dive in. First, we're going to talk about Frogs and toads. Are you excited? I'm so pumped. <laughs> Listeners can't see my face right now, but like, I'm just doing cartwheels. <laughs> no, sorry, that sounded like really douchey, but no, I'm excited. I did read Cat's Notes before, and oh um, and this is really interesting. Okay, well, the reason why I thought that this was more interesting than others was because there are a lot of frogs and toads that live here. And during the spring, when they lay all of their eggs, the males have to call out for the females, just like most animals. So they're trying to attract the female attention, right? So apparently there are some nights in the park that is just like a chorus of frogs and toads. It's really beautiful. Yes, and you can hear some of those on the YouTubes. And I just thought it was really cool. But yeah, I don't have a specific 
frog toad or the one salamander that live there but we will go over the ones that um are officially in the park it is interesting because they live their life both in water and on land that's what an amphibian is right (laughs) (laughs) thank you so they are affected by the environmental changes of both water and land and they actually breathe through their skin so they like any kind of like pollution or radiation or something of that nature that's in the environment they are going to be affected by it so it's been in the news lately that some of the amphibians have had mutations like an extra head or a missing limb right and they've also had a dramatic population decline even some extinctions um, not necessarily in Canyonland but overall so because of this the frogs and toads and salamanders are considered indicator species so we've talked about keystone species before if they leave the environment then it all kind of falls apart they are the keystone these are indicator species so when these species either start falling off or maybe have mutations like two heads or something like that. There is something in the environment that's being indicated that should not be there. Wow. Which is super cool. And so they use these. Um, there's a lot of research that goes on in this park because, as you mentioned, it hasn't really been affected by humans yeah. and things like that. So they can have like areas that's like, oh, this is what a park would be like if no one touched it ever. And so they do a lot of research here. Right. I think about that a lot whenever I am whenever I'm watching movies and a scene takes place in a very wilderness area and I'm like, how do they find like places that like are so untouched by right. humans? Like how do how do like these filmmakers like find like so many areas? And my brain like just automatically goes to America and I know there are there are many, many, many places around the world that have like been virtually untouched by humans but also national parks are used a lot for um for filmmaking as yeah. well and a few films have used Canyonlands National mm-hmm. Park to show like old western movies and a lot of movies that like well, times that have taken place before like the present day with like all the development and everything that's going on so that and it's really cool that you can see it depicted as a place that has been untouched by humans, but it also literally has been right. untouched by humans. Right. Yeah. That was just my little tangent. So, well, and that's also a good segue into what I'm about to say. So, thus far, neither mutations nor population declines have been observed at Canyonlands at all because oh. these indicator species um, – haven't shown that and preserving this amphibian habitat is a priority for the national park service a priority a priority love that word prioritizing so um if you want to check out some of the cool animals there are red spotted toads woodhouses toads american bullfrog northern leopard frog great basin spadefoot tiger salamander and the unconfirmed canyon tree frog unconfirmed yes it's on several websites so they are unconfirmed but people believe that they're there oh that's pretty cool um yeah and i also just a little side note so there's the northern leopard frog and the tiger salamander and i'm just like who was naming these animals that knew what a tiger and a leopard look like but hadn't seen a frog in north america you know what i mean yeah interesting i don't know I don't either, but um, someone please let us know. <laughs> I would love to take a break, wet my whistle, Let's, stretch my really legs, great. 
Cool. Well, we'll take a break and we'll come back with more Canyonlands. Canyonlands. See you soon. Hey, now we're going to talk about birds. <laughs> <laughs> the... Now it's time for birds. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. We're going to talk about, yes, ravens. Okay. Because ravens and crows look similar, but ravens are much cooler. They're much cooler. Crows so, are like the annoying little brother, and the ravens are like the pretty popular sister, older sister. Oh, that's a really That might have been like a really rude analogy, but... I agree that ravens are cooler. The intent was not to be rude. That was great. Thank you. Yes, Mm -hmm. correct. Birds are the most visible animal in Canyonland. Even on the hottest summer day, turkey vultures, mm, so beautiful. (laughs) The white-throated swifts circle around the canyons. The most intriguing to me bird that I saw on their list was the common raven, which is anything but common. It has accompanied people, actually, around the Northern Hemisphere for centuries following wagons, sleds, sleighs, and hunting parties in hopes of a quick meal. Ravens are among the smartest of all birds, gaining a reputation for solving ever more complicated problems invented by more creative scientists. What does that mean? So scientists keep like trying to give them problems to solve, like oh. yeah, and like like while they're under observation. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So basically, ravens have learned that when they hear a gunshot, that something is probably dead. Oh. And so when they hear a gunshot, they'll fly to it and circle around and try to figure out where they can, like, pick up this dead thing. Crazy. Yeah, I mean, Smart, smart, but gross. Smart, but gross. Yep. And they've been doing it for a very, very, very long time. So ravens are, like, the smart, cooler seagull. Yeah. Well, you said like that they yeah. followed they followed people hoping for a quick yeah. meal. Yeah, no, I That's never. That's what seagulls do. I, that but is I hate a, seagulls. They're sky rats. They're sky rats, one hundred percent. But ravens are like not that. They're better than them. Yeah, <laughs> I don't have a comparison. So but. not only not only are they smart and cooler, they're also more athletic. Ravens um, are acrobatic flyers. They often do rolls and somersaults in the air. And one bird was seen flying upside down for more than half a mile. What a show off. And also, like, how the aerodynamics of that work. I don't know, but cool. Yeah, they also play games with sticks, and they'll drop them in midair, and the other one will catch it and stuff like that. They're just, they're really smart. Sounds neat. Mm -hmm. They're also tricksters. Bringing fire to people by stealing it from the sun. This is obviously not. Oh, I was like, what is she talking about? <laughs> Do you want to explain that? This is legend by native people of the Pacific Northwest that ravens are tricksters and they bring fire to people by stealing it from the sun. And they also steal salmon to drop them in the rivers all over the world, according to this legend. All right. But they might actually do that. It seems like that's something they do. Anyway, ravens are super cool. Sounds like it. Especially that upside down flying one. Yeah. Cool. And they're probably found like commonly in most places in the world. But I just, I saw their name and I was like, Canyonland Raven. Canyonland Raven. So also, like many of our other um, podcasts, we're going to have kind of a deserted area 
But this one, as we mentioned before, there's like four different parts of the park. So there's watery parts with riparian buffers and some trees and some gorgeous things going on. There's cactus. There's actually a lot of moss because it's either like very rainy there or not rainy at all. They get some snow and things like that. And there's actually beyond succulents and cactus, there's wildflowers as well. So you can get the best of all worlds when it comes to plant life. It is important to realize that we are yet again in the desert and plants have adapted between their leaves and their roots in order to live in these extreme temperatures. So their leaves are smaller. So the the spines are a leaf. They're, they're like evolution leaf, right? Okay. So there's two types of plants in Canyonland. There's either the drought escapers. These plants make use of favorable growing conditions when they exist. These plants are usually annuals that grow when there's enough water to be available. And then they drop their seeds and the seeds lie dormant until there's enough water again. Smart. Yep. So those are like the wildflowers and things like that. The April flowers... April showers bring May flowers. Bring May wildflowers. There's also drought resistors. <laughs> Which is a cool name. These are the spiny leaves that reduce the impact of solar radiation. And some may drop their leaves when water is unavailable. So if you have a cactus at home that has like some little leaves and it's dropping them, you might want to give it some wah-wah. Oh, good. Cactus yuccas which I did say that right. Perfect. And mosses are examples of drought resistors. Yuccas have extensive tap roots. So instead of like no roots, they have one long deep root that are able to use water body that reach other plants. So they'll... Oh, they'll tap into mm -hmm. another plant's root system and get some water that way. Mm -hmm. So as I mentioned, mosses um, are there and they're commonly not, or they commonly are associated with the desert because they can tolerate the complete dehydration. And then when it rains, it just like perks back up. Hey, I'm moss again. And it holds on to it for a little bit until it's dehydrated again. Basically. Like... The plant, the sponges of plants. Yes. So I wanted to talk about one of the drought resistors that actually grows in North Carolina as well. And when you go on like a web page to see all the different types of this drought resistor, um, you have to like hit the scroll button several times. It's like there are so many variations. So this is a cactus, uh, if you didn't already guess. Prickly pear cactus. Prickly pear cactus. Yeah. I've heard of that. You haven't? I might. I know I have. Okay, yeah. I might own a few, too. (gasps) Oh, that's exciting. I'm just saying. Do you ever eat them? Mm Mm-mm. Okay, so we'll talk about that in a moment. Oh, wow. These cactus are the ones, if I have to describe it, it's like a paddle, a flat pad, and then out of the pad will come these red little tear-shaped, well, we'll talk about this in a second, but they're called tunas. They're like they look like little pom poms mm-hmm. on top of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they may have many, and they may have just a few. But they're really they're really pretty. They grow pretty much everywhere. They grow on beaches. They grow in deserts. So you prickly probably pear. prickly pear. You can also make margaritas with them. <laughs> oh, Very well known. Yes. Okay. So uh, the fruit of the prickly pear is a delicious meal for most of the animals that live in this area but it can also be a food for people people call them either figs nopals or tunas in spanish i know them as tunas and they have to be 
peeled very carefully because even though sometimes they don't look like they have little spines, they have like, yeah, it's almost like fiberglass yeah. and they'll get all up in your hands. Just, <gasps> yeah. That has actually happened when I was repotting one and mm-hmm. it, they were in my hands for quite some time. And like, if you look really, really hard, you can like pick them out, but like dozens of them in one square inch. They are, it, fiberglass is exactly what I described mm-hmm. or what I said whenever I was describing what it felt like. Oh, it's horrible. So yes, be very careful. Wear gloves. Yeah, certainly wear gloves. Yeah, if you do anything yeah, with you, these prickly pears. They are very prickly. And even if you prickly. like go to buy them in the store, sometimes they don't have the, well, a lot of times they don't have the little pricklies taken off. So either be prepared to like come to the store with tongs or something of that nature. Yes, get you some protection because mm-hmm. it was like... A few days before my hands were back to normal. But they're really, really good for you. Native Americans and the indigenous people would either roll them in like sand to kind of uh, exfoliate them. Or they would also put them over a flame of a campfire. And they've also been used in folk medicine, which is how I first found out that they were called tunas. I went to like some presentation where they were like, oh, you can eat this, but it's also good for like cuts and burns and stuff like that oh. kind of like an aloe vegan leather which i kind of knew about yeah the, and great. that's not the tuna part that is the the pad part mm-hmm. bioethanol or fuel so oh. yeah they have Whoa. a lot of carbon stocked in them so you can make that into fuel and bioplastics which is kind of the same thing very cool you may have a good idea of what this looks like you may not I think it's really cool that the coat of arms in Mexico depicts a Mexican gold eagle perched on a prickly pear cactus. So nice. you can also just look up coat of arms Mexico, and that's what the cactus looks like. Do it. All right. So lastly, we're going to talk about the juniper tree, whoop specifically whoop. the Utah juniper. Since we are in Utah, that doesn't make sense. It does make sense. Tell us about it. Junipers grow in some of the most inhospitable landscapes imaginable, thriving in an environment of baking heat, bone-chilling cold, intense sun, little water, and fierce winds. Often they appear to grow straight out of solid rock. On the Colorado Plateau, the juniper forms the most prevalent plant plant community. There's a lot of peas right there. Juniper, are you crazy? Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. So, they're everywhere. I love juniper. Do you like juniper? Like, the flavor? Um, I never really... No. Oh. I, no, I, I'm pretty indifferent towards them, believe it or not. Well, I love them. <laughs> the juniper can withstand drought conditions that often kill other plants and trees. It has a massive undergroup root system, which can account for two-thirds of a tree's total mass. Wow. Yes. Big old root ball. Yep, and the taproot can penetrate 25 feet straight down and search for water. Junipers standing only 5 feet tall may be 50 years old, and they typically live from 350 to 700 years. Oh, casual. Yeah. Casual, yes. Wow. Yeah. You're changing my mind about my indifference towards the juniper. Yes. No two junipers ever seem to look alike. Some are bushy and have multiple trunks, and many have poorly formed crowns that are a mixture of dead and live branches. To conserve water, junipers can self-prune, stopping the nutrient supply to one branch in order to ensure the survival of the tree. 
I can't think of anything else that does that right now. But even like the little cactus we were talking about where it drops its little leaves. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of the same thing. Self-pruning. Neat. Cool. Yeah. Very smart. The fruit is a pea-sized light blueberry, which is actually a tiny pine cone covered with a drought-resistant waxy coating. We have some dried ones in my, like, cabinet right now. I can show you. Juniper berry. Juniper. Not to be confused with the blueberry. But very similar. Oh, okay. Yeah. So if you do confuse them, like, no big deal. We Not get in it. taste, but in look. In look. Yeah. Okay. Animals like to eat them. People like to eat them. There's also medicinal qualities with them, just like with the tunas. Um, they in- treat stomach aches, coughs, and headaches. <laughs> what would a park like Canyonland look like without juniper trees? It would still be beautiful, but perhaps less enchanting. The juniper adds charm, color, and splendor to the landscape. It provides a stark contrast to the lifeless rock seemingly happily living in a place where few plants can. It's a master of survival in a harsh condition where ultimately rock perpetuates over time. Perpetuates. Yes. So that's all I have about the landscape and things of that nature. Excellent. Thank well, you. Let's talk about visiting the park. As you could probably imagine, Canyonlands is very popular recreational destination. And as we already mentioned, since 2007, more than 400,000 people have visited the park each year. And geography of the park is well suited for a number of different recreational uses. So hikers, mountain bikers, backpackers, and four-wheelers all enjoy traveling the rugged remote trails within the park. Day-use permits must be obtained before traveling on the popular White Rim Road due to the increasing popularity of driving and bicycling along it. Um, So do your research before you go. And the Park Service's intent is to provide Excuse me. (laughs) The Park Service's intent is to provide a better wilderness experience for all visitors while minimizing impacts on the natural surroundings. So going back to what we talked about earlier, they've done a very good job of showing what this land could look like and should look like Mm -hmm. with little to no impact impact from humans. Okay, Kat, have you ever seen... Or heard of the movie 127 Hours? No. You have not? No. Either heard of or seen? Well, I heard of it today when I was doing this research, but no. Oh, you had not before. Okay, so this was a story that was made famous by the movie 127 Hours starring James Franco. And it's a story of a hiker getting trapped along a hike within Canyonlands National Park. In April of 2003, a guy named Aaron Ralston, 26, was on a solo hike deep in Canyonlands. A loose boulder sends him tumbling into a deep crevice and pins his right arm to the canyon wall. Wedged in place, it will not budge no matter what he tries. 24 hours stretches into 48 and then into 72. And he didn't tell anyone that he was hiking, so Aaron knows his chances for rescue are very slim and he chronicles his whole ordeal in a video diary from the camera that he carries in his backpack Um, and this was also done in the movie 127 hours a lot of it was filmed like on gopro like mobile type camera it's just a person laying on the ground with a boulder on top of them. Pretty much. I've not seen it. It's not Doing like really my type of film, but like very, very scary situation. 
But obviously, we know the whole story because he survives. So after five days, he decides he must cut off his arm to escape. All he has is a dull camping knife, but he manages the grueling pain, amputates his own arm, and drags himself out of the rocky prison and hikes out to safety. Sounds exciting. (laughs) Sounds awful. I've been watching a lot of... Grey's Anatomy, and I, if I never see an amp- another amputation in my life, I'll be fine. I think that's a very healthy thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. I'll support you. So, although Canyonlands has hundreds of miles of hiking trails, which explore the park's natural and cultural features, please be careful. Please be careful and tell someone where you are going. Or better yet, don't go alone. Take a friend. Take a friend. Take multiple friends. Take a lot of water. Just get your permits. So that's uh, a very cautionary tale. Thank you, Aaron, for living. (laughs) And thank you, James Franco, for telling that story. So both Island in the Sky and The Needles provides ample opportunities for short walks, day hikes, and backpacking trips. But due to its remoteness, the maze, the other section of the park, is primarily a backpacking destination. No matter what you do, make sure you do your research prior to the trip and obtain the necessary permits and always check the current conditions on the park's website. Mm -hmm. Even if you're just driving around. Even if you're just driving around. Could be dangerous. Make sure you know what you're doing. Um, and do a little bit of uh, Googling before. So most people say the easiest way to see the park and get the most out of your trip is to visit the Island in the Sky Mm -hmm. section. Um, So this district is only 32 miles from Moab and offers many pullouts with spectacular views along the paved scenic drive. So really easy to travel along. Hiking trails and four-wheel drive roads access backcountry areas for day or overnight trips. The island in the sky sits atop a massive 1,500 foot mesa, quite literally an island in the sky. And from these lofty viewpoints, visitors can often see over 100 miles in any given direction, resulting in panoramic views that encompass thousands of square miles of the desert terrain. So really pretty stuff. And chances are, whenever you Google Canyonlands National Park, a majority of the pictures that come up are probably going to be from the Island in the Sky section of the park. Yes. So you can take short day hike or spend a relaxing late afternoon enjoying the sunset. And whether you have just a few hours to spend or a few days, the Island in the Sky section provides an unforgettable canyon country experience for the entire family. Yes. Or your friends. Very family friendly. Or your bachelorette weekend. Whatever. Not dog friendly. No. But family friendly. Exactly. Thank you for pointing that out. Don't you ever put a dog in any type of situation that could threaten their life. Ever. Ever. Anyway, Kat, let's play some trivia. So Kat has not seen these questions before. I have five questions. They're all multiple choice. And she's going to try to guess the right answer. Mm. So no pressure to Kat. Because she's not expected to know these. But instead of just saying, like, here's what you should know when going to the park, we're going to try to make it a little more fun. All right. Um, in, through this trivia game. So, Kat, <clears throat> question number one. What is the entrance fee per car to Canyon Lanes National Park? Is it A, $15, B, $20, C, $25, or D, $30? I'm going to say A. $15. Incorrect. Aww. It is D, 
this is one of the more expensive ones to yeah go maybe that's why they only have seven hundred thousand visitors a year i don't know just kidding yosemite has they do good research so many yeah, and that's true. they charge i think maybe the same maybe a little bit more they have a little bit more than just desert though <laughs> a little bit more <laughs> but anyway so yes either get your annual parks pass for eighty dollars or be prepared to pay thirty dollars for entrance but it's just per car so if you can Pack five people in, then okay. you can split it five ways. All right, question number two. As previously mentioned, the Colorado River and Green River merge at a special point in Canyonlands National Park. A rather long hike can take visitors to view this exact point. What's the name of this point? A, the merge. B, the confluence. C, the Canyonlands River intersection. Or D, River Meat Point. River Meat. <laughs> <laughs> I like I I want to say it's C because why would you just write that if it wasn't a what was C again? The Convergence Meat Section. <laughs> C is C is Canyonlands River Intersection. B oh, okay. is Confluence. A is the Merge. Okay, it's got to be Confluence. B. Correct. <laughs> The Confluence. Sorry. The Confluence Overlook Trail is a 10-mile, moderately trafficked out-and-back trail located near Moab. It's rated moderate, and the trail is primarily used for hiking, nature trips, and mountain biking, and is accessible year-round. So, the Confluence is actually the literal definition of a location where two rivers meet. Yes. And I figured you would maybe know that, being the smart biology major that you were, but yeah. So check out that hike if you want to go see um, the really cool point where the Green River and the Colorado Colorado River come together. I'm sure it's beautiful with all sorts of junipers. Okay, Kat, you are one for two. Let's keep going. Number three, the highest point of elevation in Canyonlands is at Cathedral Point in the Needles District. So um, this is a pretty cool spot where a deep and varied panorama that is very seldom found in the rest of the country or the world can be viewed. If you walk the loop around the top of the mesa, you will also get a fantastic insight into the, this is pronoun, pronoun? No, popular noun. What do you call Proper noun. Whoa. <laughs> you go back to fourth grade, apparently. <laughs> um, this is proper noun into the Lavender Canyon, the Mecca of the arches. So this is highly recommended. But anyway, if you go to Cathedral Point, how high up can you be expected to be? A, we're just gonna, we're not gonna pause again for this plane. Sorry, there have been planes coming up and we're trying to like pause and so that you but don't hear them. Hungry. But we're hungry. And we're hungry. We're so hungry. Anyway. We can't even read anymore. <laughs> is it A, 6,090 6, feet, B, 6,900 feet, C, 7,120 feet, or D, 22,000 feet. My goodness. 22, that's a lot of feet, 22,000. It's a lot of feet. I can tell you it's probably not that one. Yeah, and I feel like you're trying to, you tried to get me all confused with A and B, so I'm going to go with C. C is correct. Woo! The highest point of elevation in Canyonlands National Park, Cathedral Point, is 7,120 feet. And as a reminder, Kat, that is higher than any point in North Carolina. Oh, wow. Yeah. All right. You're doing good, Cap. Let's keep it up. Number four, Canyonlands became a national park in 1964. Who was the president at the time that bill was signed into law? Is it A, Lyndon B. Johnson, 
B, Gerald a, Ford. Hold on, I just want to go with it. I just want to go with it. <laughs> I know this. I'm going with it. Correct. It was Lyndon B. Johnson. He was president from November 1963 to January 1969. Okay, very good job, Cap. Last one. And this one is, like, also part of the game, but also just, like, this is really important for anyone who plans a visit to know before they go to Canyonlands. This is precious, by the way. All of this. Oh, good. Yeah. Thank you. Number five. How many dining and lodging facilities are in Canyonlands National Park? Is it A, zero dining and zero lodging? B, one dining and two lodging? C, two dining and zero lodging? Or D, one dining and one lodging? Okay, one thing I do know is that none of the campsites have water. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to say that there's no lodging. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah. And um, since there's no, I'm assuming there's no dining too because there would be water. So what's going to be your final answer? The zero zero. I think A. Correct. Yay. A. So this is very important to know. There are no spots to get food or stay indoors in Canyon Lanes National Park. So you must prepare ahead of time. Either camp or reserve a room in a nearby town in advance of your trip but be sure to pack plenty of snacks and water if and when you go yeah they um someone was being really sweet um they have a youtube video where you can actually watch them drive the whole trail from that used to be a cattle trail and every time there was a hiker or a biker they would stop and ask them if they needed water because people don't bring enough and they run out and they get yeah so yeah be a good be a good person bring some extra wawa for those bikers who are trying to go uphill being crazy oh my gosh and the heat Mm -mm. yeah bring some extra water both for you and for anyone else who might need some Kat, I think it's time for some fun facts. I agree. What you got? My favoriteest fact, and it would take forever to talk about how far I, like, I did poor job of researching what I'm supposed to research because I got deep into this. But there is an area, a geological formation called Upheaval Dome, and it is found in the island in the sky. While most of the Canyonlands geological history is clear, the Upheaval Dome has left geological geologist debating whether it's a crater that was formed by a meteorite impact which it looks just like a meteorite impact or the remnants of a salt dome so like the salt like coming up too fast and it just like kind of does from what i can tell it kind of does like a little volcano thing but not really Hmm. i know and it's just so cool interessant what about you well i have two um and i'll start with this The maze district is remote and more difficult to reach. It's made up of spires and clefts west of the Colorado and the Green Rivers. And this is also one of the most inaccessible areas in all of the continental United States. So this park, one of its four sections, the maze district, is one of the most hardest places to get to in the country. That's crazy. That's wild. I mean, you can, but you definitely got to prepare first. They rent Jeeps in Moab, yeah, like specifically for this. So if you don't want to like ruin your own vehicle and all of its brakes, you might want to rent a Jeep. Solid thought. <laughs> so when we were in Acadia, we discussed the effects of light pollution on the fireflies. Right. Light pollution is a problem everywhere, but it's not here. It's not there. <laughs> so national parks and preserves have some of the darkest skies in the country. In some areas, it's possible to see 15,000 stars throughout the night. By contrast, city dwellers see fewer than 500 stars at night. 
Night skies at Canyonlands are so pristine that the International Dark Sky Association designated Canyonlands as a gold-tier International Dark Sky Park in 2015. Nice. And Canyonlands is one of the many parks in southern Utah with the International Dark Sky Park designation. That's awesome. All the stores. That's really cool. Yeah, I would love to go see that, see mm-hmm. all those stars. That's so, so cool. All right, my second fact is about Butch Cassidy. Have you heard of Butch Cassidy? So I feel like that name was familiar to me. And like you hear of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Mm -hmm. But like it's just one of those things that like kind of comes about like in your 30 years of living. But you don't know. I did not know anything about Butch Cassidy. But Butch Cassidy came up when researching Canyonlands National Park. And there's actually a really cool story associated with him. So Robert Leroy Parker, born April 13th, 1866 died November 7th, 1908, question mark? Better known as Butch Cassidy, was an American train and bank robber and the leader of the gang of criminal outlaws known as the Wild Bunch in the Old West. So Butch Cassidy engaged in criminal activity for more than a decade, and at the end of the 19th century, pressures of being pursued by law enforcement forced him to flee the country. He fled with his accomplice, Harry Alonzo Longabaugh, known as the Sundance Kid, and Longabaugh's girlfriend at a place. The trio traveled first to Argentina, then to Bolivia, where Parker and Longabaugh are believed to have been killed in a shootout with the Bolivian army in November 1908. The exact circumstances of their fate continue to be disputed. But anyway, one of the hideouts of Butch Cassidy's Wild Bunch, called the Robber's Roost, is located in the Maze District of the Canyonlands Park. So, makes sense. Maze District is one of the most inaccessible areas in the country. So, really good spot for a hideout. Yeah, absolutely. And apparently he was... The most famous person to ever go to Canyonland, according to several oh, websites. Nice. They wanted to also say that it might be Thelma and Louise because their like their final scene was filmed there. But as far as real life people, right? Um, a yeah, Robert Leroy Parker, aka Butch Cassidy, Groovy. I want to be a part of the Wild Bunch. I don't. Oh, okay. Well, so um, I also didn't want to miss talking about Mesa Arch. Mesa Arch is just an arch made out of rock, basically. Mm-hmm. But typically when you have arches like this, when you look through them, you're just going to see like flat land behind it. But this is actually on the edge of the canyon. So when you look through the arch, you're looking down into the canyon. Oh. So it just like opens up. Yeah. And it's like the perfect place to see the sunrise. The sunrise comes through the arch. So if you want to go there and see the sunrise there, expect like dozens, if not close to a hundred people also they're trying to catch a um photograph and i would personally go there basically after sunrise no one's there because it's you know it's still it gorgeous out. and it's a good view but yeah it's not quite that so just look at the pictures on the interwebs of the sunrise because they are all gorgeous and yeah. then yeah or if you do want to go get your photo at sunrise just know that there's going to be other people there too maybe if you're going all the way out there then because if you're a photographer i'm sure it's like one of those things but for me when i go out there i just want to be alone this whole reason of going out there is to be alone for me. But we're all doing our own national park thing the way that we do our national this park. This is so true. it is made for you and for We're me. not going to tell you how to do it. Mm-hmm. I mean, we'll like give you suggestions, but you do it your own way. 
All right. Well, I don't have any more fun facts. No, no more fun facts. But we do want to tell you why you should visit Canyon Lands National Park. Yes. And drum roll, please. You should go to Canyon Lands for the adventure. Yay. Canyon Lands is an enormous national park. Like we said, over 330,000 acres are filled with arches, buttes, mesas, canyons, hiking trails, dirt roads, campgrounds, and overlooks. You can sleep under thousands of stars or hike for hours while seeing only a few other visitors. It would take you weeks to explore all that Canyon Lanes has to offer. However, even with only one day, you have just enough time to visit the highlights. And the spots we think you should consider are Mesa Arch, Grandview Point, Gooseberry Trail, Buck Canyon Overlook, Green River Overlook, Schaefer Canyon Viewpoint, and Upheaval Dome. And that that's about a lot to wraps see. It. Yeah, that's it a lot of adventure. But like we said, most of these are in this concentrated area, so it is doable in just a few days. Beautiful. Yeah. Great. Well, Kat, I have to ask, but I kind of hope you don't have anything because we need to wrap it up. But do you have any questions, comments, thoughts? critiques, philosophies, intuitions, or ambiguities. I just think you're so wonderful, Nick. I think you're wonderful. Thanks. Well, thank you. All right. Well, if you like this episode, you should share it with a friend. We would really appreciate that. And like we said, it makes you feel so good when someone texts you a link to a song or a podcast or a YouTube video and just say, hey, think you would enjoy this. And I think you should do that with this or any of the other episodes we have on America's National Parks. Follow us on Instagram at MFYAM Podcast. And see all the beautiful things that we discuss in each episode. You're beautiful. Bye.